This is a Romy cast. Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Are you excited? Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, no, it's all right. It's a little bit of 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 a little bit And hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me, and let's take another stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guest on this episode is, once again, the artistic director of the Art of Time Ensemble, Andrew Barashko. Now, this is part two of our discussion of the Beatles' classic 1967 album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and also the Art of Time Ensemble's 2012 live presentation of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, They put on a series of live shows in Toronto in May and June of 2012, which was the 45th anniversary of Pepper's release. The shows were recorded, and a live album was released. They also toured the show as well and have had great success presenting it. Uh, The album is available to stream on all platforms, and it features on vocals uh, Andy Mays of the Skydiggers, John Mann of Spirit of the West, Craig Northey of Odds, and Stephen Page, ex of the Bare Naked Ladies, and also of a great solo career. It also features just a... A stunning array. It's the creme de la creme of Canadian orchestral players, string, woodwind, brass players. I mean, just top-notch people. So we're going to talk about that group and how that group went about interpreting the greatest pop group of all time, and some would say the greatest pop group's greatest pop record. Hey, speaking of Craig Northey, just a quick story for you. I have Craig to thank. I want to give him a shout out uh, for the idea for these last couple of episodes. What happened was I initially approached Craig uh, to see if he'd like to come on again and talk about a Beatles album or Beatles solo album. And he was he was keen and we went back and forth. And I mentioned Pepper. I said, I'd love, love to get your take on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And then he came back and said, well, the guy that I should really talk to about that was Andrew Barashko. Uh, And then he hooked us up via email. Um, And Andrew and Craig as well filled me in on the project and the album, uh, which I must admit I knew nothing about. In my defense, I was living overseas when the project uh, was formulated and the concerts presented. I wasn't exactly dialed into what was going on in the Canadian music scene at that time. But uh, that being as it may, shout out to Craig. Thank you very much. I don't know whether Craig 
was sort of that was a, a sort of a polite blow off. Didn't really want to come on the podcast again. So hey, you should talk to this guy um, or uh, or what was going on there. But Craig, hey, love to have you on again. And thanks for the introduction to Andrew and how this all came together. So thank you very much for that. Uh, once again, this is part two of our discussion. We'll be talking about side two of Pepper. If you haven't heard part one yet, I would suggest that you go and listen to that and then come back and listen to part two. That's what I do. Just saying. The Art of Time Ensemble is a collective of some of the absolute finest musicians, arrangers, composers, and singers in Canadian music. I was talking about that a few moments ago, and they collaborate with the best, not only musicians in projects, but other performing artists. So film, uh, literature as well, very diverse. Uh, Andrew himself is a brilliant pianist. Uh, He debuted with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra when he was 17 years old, and he has performed as a soloist and chamber musician extensively all over Canada and all over the world. He's also a huge Beatles fan. Find out more about Andrew and the Art of Time Ensemble at their website, artoftimeensemble.com, and you can also find them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of which, the website for this podcast is romicast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the eighth episode of Series 3. You can find all the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Andrew, good to see you again. My pleasure. So, side two, first track, and I don't know about you, Andrew, I always try to imagine, I mean, the whole album is this way, and again, another rabbit hole we can go down, uh, but when the needle went down on side two, you just bought this album, you're a Beatles fan, it's June of 1967, you've just listened to the first side, wow, that was really different, I've never heard anything like that, their voices sounded funny, uh, there's all these effects, uh, Indian instruments, and then you put side two on, and the first cut is within you, without you. I wonder what that was like. You know, I could go on and on about the similarities or the uh, connections between Revolver and and Sgt. Pepper. Uh, but one of them was that the first time they they ever played Indian classical music was on Revolver with Love You Too, right? Yeah. So um, at, at least there was a precedent uh, for that. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't have been a probably for, you know, the diehard Beatle fan, a total shock. But of course, you know, it's like suddenly you're, you're in a completely different world. But because they, um, uh, all the side, well, not all of side A, but much of side A is colored with Indian instruments. Somehow it makes more sense than, you know, uh, the shock of hearing uh, Love You Too on, on Revolver, which comes out of nowhere. So yeah, um, yes, for sure, and and yet it wasn't the first. It wasn't the first time.
Basic track was recorded in March of 1967 at EMI's Abbey Road. They did it in Studio 2, which was the main studio they used there. Uh, if you listen to this podcast, you probably know there are three studios at uh, still to this day. You have the great big, huge Studio 1, which the Beatles use sometimes. They used it for a song we'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, and it's used to this day to do uh, film soundtracks. It's, it can accommodate a full orchestra. Studio 2 is kind of a medium-sized studio. I've been lucky enough to have been in there a couple of times. Uh, and it's where the Beatles did most of their recording. And then there's a smaller room, which has been re- done which is studio three it's the smallest of the three studios and the beatles did do some work there uh quite a number of tracks on the white album i'm going by memory were done in studio three so this is done in studio two and uh, they tried to get a bit of atmosphere they they put a carpet down uh decorated this the walls with indian tapestries they turned the lights down they had incense burning uh and then you had a tambura playing and then indian musicians played on tabla uh dilruba tambura uh a zither type of zither. Yeah, Swara Mandala, I think. Thank you yeah. very much. I wasn't even going to take a run at that. <laughs> that gets nice to have a guy who knows music here. I, I, I have the word right in front of me. I thought, yeah, it's a type of a zither. That'll, that'll do. Uh, and, and that provided the, the, the glissando flourishes that introduced the tabla during the, uh, uh, the a lap, I guess it's called, and the, and the signal to return to the 16-beat tin towel before the final verse. That means more to you than it does to me. <laughs> You're nodding your head. That's good. Uh, I, go ahead. Well, well. Also, I, I love, um, I love the the title. I, I love Harrison's play. You know, play on words within you, without you. I mean, he he seemed to really love that when uh, in Blue Jay Way when he uh, please don't be long, please don't belong, yeah. and also you know. Um, Love you too, right? The two is only spelt with one O. So that that uh, that play in the lyrics is great. Um, a lot of credit to Jeff Emmerich, who was the engineer. Who you know, a lot of engineers at that time wouldn't have been familiar with how you mic Indian instruments. Uh, and he mic'd them, the tabla especially, mic'd it very, very closely because he wanted to get the texture and the low resonances of the instrument. So a lot of credit to him uh, for how this, how this sounds. Um, I, I've, I've heard mentioned, and I know nothing about the instrument, that the sitar parts played on here would have been beyond George Harrison's scope on the instrument, his command of the instrument at that stage. But the, the, the notes all say that he played on here. What, oh, what, what say you? I, I really don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I thought that even on Revolver, he had a real sitar player. Um, so yeah, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. He had, you know, he had the appropriate humility and, and respect for the instrument. I, I think he knew his limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, Harrison in the recollection of those that had the entire structure of the song mapped out in his head and he sung the melody he wanted to some of the players that, that, that he wanted them to follow. Um, so 
again to your version and the theme of my questioning, but <laughs> no Indian instruments. Uh, so, so what was the thought of your arranger on how to pull something like this off without the crucial part of the instrumentation? Um, well, yeah, I, I, I think that was the hardest song to I'll bet. to tackle. Uh, Andrew Downing, who's a really gifted jazz bass player, uh, did this arrangement. Um, the original, what, one of the things that I, I really love about the original is how they blended Western strings into this Indian arrangement. It, and so, so it was there. So Andrew really focused on the strings. And in the middle section, um, he tried replicating the tabla um, with these pitzes in the bass and slides. Boar. Boar. I, I, I will not try to. I will go no further. <laughs> was the same so you know I think that grounded but yes it was it was, it's probably the the biggest departure from the original on on our tribute we go on to track two on side two and uh, one that you told me back in the midst of time a couple of hours ago uh, your first memory of hearing the Beatles when I'm 64 you're smiling already yeah well you know it's such a lovely song records that was the first time anything appeared in that style um i can't think of anything before those those clarinets on that arrangement um i i read somewhere that uh the beatles used to do it at the cavern around the piano when they had technical malfunctions like electrical malfunctions i would have loved to have been there you know to have uh to have heard them do that. Uh, Lennon said of the song, Paul wrote it in the cavern days. We just stuck a few more words on it like Grandchildren on Your Knee and Vera, Chuck and Dave. Uh, this was just one that was quite a hit with us. In his 1980 interview, it was in Playboy magazine, he said, I would never even dream of writing a song like that. You know. Yeah, well, it's pure Paul. So yeah. McCartney. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it was, uh, they started working on it in December of 1966. It was one of the, one of the first sessions for the as yet to be named album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Um, and uh, multiple overdub sessions. 
And what do you have here musically? And and also, the, I think they sped that one up as well. The yes. very speed. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and again, maybe we're conflating the two. Uh, two different McCartney vocals, but George Martin's recollection is that McCartney wanted his voice very speeded to make his voice sound younger. From, oh, on this one? this I, song. Oh, I thought it was on uh, She's Leaving Home. Yeah, but, so it's yeah. for this one. This is the one. Song was recorded in the key of D flat major uh, and then uh, recorded in C major. So the song is, sorry, the song is in the key of D flat major. It was recorded in C major. So it went up a semitone. Yeah, yeah. the master takes bed up to raise the key by one semitone, as you know. So I had to, I had to check my notes for that. <laughs> Semitones, tones. Uh, a clarinet trio. You have two B flat clarinets and a bass clarinet featured prominently in the song. It was scored by George Martin. And he said they were added at McCartney's request to, quote, get around the lurking schmaltz factor by using the clarinets in a classical way. Does it, it all works for you? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, now, John Mann with a lovely vocal in your version, uh, really nice vocal. Uh, clarinets key to the original. So, Again, John Welshman, I do have this in my yep, notes. Welshman, did, did yep. the, uh, Welshman, I'm sorry. Uh, so talk to me about his arrangement. It's not, you know, all things considered that far away from the original. It kind of kicks into the, you know, kind of the Dixieland music hall thing by the third verse. But there are way more um, colors in it than in the original. The original is of one thing. It is this kind of vaudeville whatever you want to call it music hall arrangement his starts in a much freer way when i get older losing my hair many years from now will you still be sending me a valentine then once the rhythm section comes in in the third verse and the banjo comes in, it's really, it, it evokes the original much more. Like the hand in mending a fuse When your lights have gone You can knit a sweater by the fireside Sunday morning, go for a ride In the song's final verse on the Beatles version, uh, the clarinet is played in harmony with McCartney's vocal. And then you have the supporting instruments. We have a piano in there, bass, drum set, tubular bells, electric guitar. So lots, again, lots in there. You've talked about the, the, the thickness of the instrumentation on the Beatles versions uh, and, and how tough that was to recreate at times. Yes. I mean, we tried to and yet realized that it wasn't, wasn't possible. So... Um, we did try and we didn't try, if that makes any sense. Andrew, was there a conscious decision? You know, it's a theme we've, we've revisited and will, for the, I suspect, for the rest of going through the album uh, because it's such an obvious one. But was there a conscious decision at one point amongst you and the arrangers or anybody who you were bouncing ideas off of to just go, you know what? We're never going to be able to make it sound like the original. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So let's just park that. And we're going to make it sound the way it's going to sound. Yeah, that was part of the conceit for sure. And uh, I learned a lot 
from doing Abbey Road first, which which had much looser parameters. Um, and I had given the arrangers more freedom on that album than I really tightened things up. So again, you know, by preserving the the melodies, form and vocal harmonies, I, I just thought that would be enough grounding. Uh, and And by making sure that all the arrangers were they really loved the Beatles, that they wouldn't put themselves first, if you know what I mean, you know? They wouldn't make it about themselves. Next track on side two, Lovely Rita. Um, they just finished the stereo mix of A Day in a Life, right back to work on 23rd of February, 1967, and they start working on this track. love it but it's not you know not one of my favorite songs on that album you know um i i i grew to love it even more once we did it with steven singing the lead not that not to suggest for a moment that he does a better job than mccartney um yeah i you know i love the the piano sound i think that's george martin the jangly processed piano sound um yeah I don't have a hell of a lot to say about that song. Uh, McCartney's vocal arrangements directly inspired by Brian Wilson's work for the Beach Boys uh, is what I have uh, in my notes. Um, A couple of pianos, McCartney plays one, and then a second one played by George Martin and then processed electromechanically to wobble in and out of tune was added for that distinctive solo. Uh, and uh, what is it uh, George Martin says? Uh, they were really stuck for a solo. And in fact, I suggested the piano solo, believe it or not, because they were really in a, a tizwaz. I guess that... What does that even <laughs> I mean? Don't know, I don't know. <laughs> they were really... The boys were in a tizwaz uh, about what solo to put on. So then Paul shouted up because I was at the top of the stairs and Paul said, oh, you play it. So I'm so nervous, you know, in those days. So I said, no, I can't do it. I wanted a, a, a shimmer behind the piano because to get a sound of a piano that no one had heard again. So what I did is I used an echo, the echo chamber on it, which was at the back of studio number two. And we could send the signal of the piano via a tape machine into the echo chamber, which would give some sort of delay. I stuck sticky tape on all the guide rollers of the tape machine so that when the tape went through, it was wobbling all over the place, right? Again, if the manager had come in, I probably would have gotten the sack or got in terrible trouble. So I wobbled the tape going through the heads right out of the tape machine, wobbled the echo uh, or the piano into the sound, into the chamber, and it was like the sound behind the piano, but now you can actually get that sound as a plug-in because <laughs> most plug-ins now are based on the things we used to do. So that's Paul McCartney explaining that. All kinds of effects on this. McCartney's voice recorded at a lower speed, very speeded up. Oh, I thought it was speeded down. Uh, My notes say recorded it lower and sped up. Uh, And like many songs, he recorded his bass part 
after the drums and guitars had been recorded. Uh, your version, you reference Stephen Page with the vocal. Lovely Rita, meet a maid, nothing can come between us. When it gets dark, I tell your heart away. Standing by a uh, and the other thing that jumped out at me was sort of the for lack of a better description, the sort of jazz vamp in the middle eight. So these, uh, Jim McGraw did the arrangement. Jim, uh, again, he's a lot of these guys uh, work in the film world. Many of them are film composers. So, so Jim, that's his day gig. I, I think he did. Well, I know he did the music for um, Degrassi for years and years. He's also a trumpet player, and and he added these frilly piano arpeggios that open the song. And then op- the A section, and then open the. This arrangement is kind of an ABA form, right? So these frilly arpeggios, then it goes into the song. It sounds a lot like the Beatles. And then there's this middle section, which is kind of like ja- jazz burlesque mm-hmm. with this amazing sax solo by Johnny Johnson. And then it goes back to these frilly arpeggios and to the the last section of the song it's it's i think it's really neat the the uh the jazz bit that just gets sort of i'll call it a jazz bit that gets dropped in there and it it works i i'm glad you think so (laughs) for for what it's worth you know like this has been and again it's all relative but the most divisive chart in that you know, what the hell is this jazz part? <laughs> you, know, you know, in that it, it does deviate from the song. Like he just drops this new thing that has nothing to do with the original into this arrangement. I, I thought it worked beautifully. First yeah. time you heard it, you did? Was there any? Mm, not sure. There's always doubt, always doubt every time I hear, you know, but uh, I, you know, there were other charts which on first hearing, I just decided we're completely wrong. I won't, I won't go into which ones. Uh, which ones? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, no. It no, was, no. Uh, you know, again, it's what are people going to think? You know, I mean, this is the Beatles, you know. Uh, I couldn't help but uh, have those concerns, you know. Next track is uh, Good Morning, Good morning. Uh, your classic John Lennon sneer at, at British middle class life, uh, but great song. <laughs> to do to save his life call his wife in nothing to say but what a day how's your boy been nothing to do it's up to you i've got nothing to say but it's okay good morning good morning good morning love it i love how 
I love how dirty and compressed <laughs> all of it is, but especially the the, the brass um, and the saxophones. Uh, really raunchy, and that guitar solo in the middle, you know, anyone who knows that it was Paul on Taxman can't mistake that, you know? Mm. um, I love it. You know, it's, it's so interesting, especially with Lennon's songs, because they all sound so natural and simple. Uh, some of them have the craziest time signatures, this being one of them. Like when when it was actually arranged for us and when we were playing them, I was amazed at how complicated those time signatures are. You know, um, also in All You Need Is Love for that matter. It, it's really, it's really remarkable. It's a great guitar solo, which is played by McCartney, as, as you pointed out, on his uh, Fender Esquire for you guitar heads, single pickup Telecaster. He also, he's for all the Pepper sessions. Uh, instrumentation, uh, they have the, the freelancers in there, three saxes, two trombones, a French horn. Uh, the little group that hired was called Sounds Inc., if you're interested. The horns, as you pointed out, Andrew, uh, compressed, limited, flanged heavily, everything done to them, like really, really treated uh, and works so well. Uh, The animal sounds at the end, John Lennon's idea, and they were inspired by, and you know, Beatles had their antenna up at all times, uh, the coda of Caroline No, Caroline No on the Beach Boys album, uh, which is one of the main inspirations for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but the animal sounds at the end of Pet Sounds uh, that you hear. I, I also have wondered in the past if it was a precursor to Piggies, which is, you know, this being about the, you know, banality of British life. Um, and, you know, have you seen the little piggies in their starch white shirts and the pig sounds at the end of that? Anyway, uh, starts off with the crow of a rooster, uh, and then the other animal sounds. You have birds, a cat, dog, cow, horse, sheep, lion, elephant, a group of bloodhounds on a fox hunt. Uh, and then Lennon asked Jeff Emmerich to arrange the animal noises heard at the beginning and end of the song so that each animal heard was capable of devouring or frightening the animal preceding it. Not sure he got that totally, but that's what he was after. Uh, and then you have the, the brilliant ending of the song. You have the chicken clucking, uh, and it goes right into the the guitar track to open the next one. But your version of this, what jumped out at me was the, and I'll call it a Monty Python-esque, you know, morning, 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 the way it started. Uh, love that. Morning. 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 That was the guys, you know, in the moment, joking around. It wasn't planned. <laughs> oh, it wasn't. Oh, no, no. No, okay. it wasn't planned at all. It was just the Stephen and Craig and Johnny. Nothing to do to 
to save his life, call his wife. Nothing to say, but what a day. How's your boy been? You know, being a classical musician, there's no banter, you know, in what I do. I love watching those guys. They're, they're such master entertainers and they're such masters of banter. Anyway, it was improvised by them. Well, it was fun. It was fun. And it's, uh, then we get into the reprise of the title track before getting into the monstrous track called A Day in the Life that we'll get to in a moment. your take on the reprise well again it's i i tried to to stick to the original but i couldn't resist somehow i'm a huge radiohead fan and i don't remember how many bars it is of the opening but as it gets into it um i i i just stole the the bass line from the national anthem by radiohead um Oh, yeah. I've got to go back and listen to that. Yeah. Yes. And then it segues into, on the Beatles album, uh, A Day in the Life. You a Day hear, in the Life, You yeah. hear that amazing acoustic guitar that every Beatles fan and probably every pop music fan would recognize whether you're a fan of the Beatles or not. Half of my notes a day in the life. Where do you start? So I'll let you start. Well, you know, one of the greatest songs of all time, I think. One, absolutely one of my favorite Beatles songs. Um, I absolutely love um, Ringo's playing on it, uh, as I do on on Strawberry Fields. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, yeah, and, and you know, th- that massive orchestral climax that connects the first section to Paul's middle section and then that ends the piece. Um, it's epic. 
It's epic. And, and you know, we try to stick more or less to the original. We open with the piano instead of the acoustic guitar. And the only, uh, the main difference is that unlike the original, which again climaxes with this chromatic climb to the top and then ending with that piano note, uh, ours kind of dissipates and relaxes. This and, is what I, I mean, we're talking about both here, but that's what I have. Your version, huge contrast or big contrast to the original, which builds up and then has one of the most famous song endings in the history of pop music, the, you know, bomb. Yeah, and then, maybe, so I should mention it was Rob Carley who also did The Arranger, uh, who also did Good Morning. Um, and again, Rob, brilliant, brilliant, Musician, um, again, film, TV, um, he, and and has performed a lot with us as he's a sax player. Um, I think that was him not trying to compete with the Beatles, or or I don't know. Uh, well, it just your version. It just the Beatles one. Uh, numb is probably slightly strong, but you you sit there and you just go like it. It's still for me. It's still a hair on the back of your neck moment. That final chord, and I'll talk a bit about how they achieve that in a moment. But just that you know, and it it dies out. And then if you had the British version, there's the inner groove which kind of snaps you out of it, and, and it's over. But yours, you sort of alluded to it. But it really, in my mind, it just sort of picks you up. After this, and it sits you down so gently. There's, it's, it's the complete opposite of what the original does. last note is still there but it's gentle you know it's at the end of this uh relaxing uh as opposed to intensifying uh final chord um you probably know this but the so the the, the final orchestral crescendo the song ends with the, the that final chord so the way they got it lennon mccartney ringo and mal evans all sat on three different pianos George Martin was on the harmonium and they all played you, you do you know the the chord it's a, it's an E major chord they all play it simultaneously 
the final chord was made to ring out over 40 seconds. And I don't know if now that they've remastered everything, whether you could still get it. But I remember reading this the first time when I still have my old Beatles records. And what happened was they all hit this note. So you have the strings and the pianos vibrating. And and Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, just kept pushing the faders up. So what that does, dear listener, for those of you not recording artists, it just it it increases the sensitivity of the microphones and he kept pushing it up and pushing it up to the maximum so that they'd get that last absolute little tiny vibration of the string it goes out over 40 seconds but what you also hear is you hear um you hear some papers rustle and fall to the floor you hear a little chair squeak and you can almost hear the air conditioning in the studio again i don't know whether that's disappeared with all the remastering and now that it's all digital but on the original that's how they got it yeah well i think also uh part of the reasoning for that was to um counter the decay of the notes it was it was to sustain it for as long as possible just an incredible song um yeah i have so many notes here i mean the the uh of course the the famous bit we talked earlier about the studio studio one which is where they uh, they they did this mccartney initially wanted a 90 piece orchestra (laughs) it sounds like a 90 piece orchestra (laughs) they they settled for a 40 piece orchestra um and uh so what they so the final edit of the song, okay, here's what they do. They, they were they had all kinds of people in there, made it like a party atmosphere. You can see films of this uh, in Beatles documentaries and also on YouTube. Um, Mick Jagger was there, Marianne Faithful, Keith Richards, Brian Jones, Donovan, Patty Boyd, Michael Nesmith from the Monkees. Uh, and uh, then they got the orchestral players to, some guys were wearing, uh, one guy had a gorilla's claw on his, on his bow hand, Matt. Masks. Uh, there's a guy with a penis nose, rubber rubber mask on, and and uh, so they get this. Um, but it, it's the instructions that they gave were they wanted every person on their instrument to start at their lowest note and work their way up to the highest possible note, and that's that's how it was done. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing. Uh, and uh, please, just uh, as of a note, so the the total duration of time spent working on a day in the life was 34 hours. So that's everything all in. Uh, please please me was recorded in its entirety. That's their first album in 10 hours and 45 minutes. So <laughs> that is that is how much more complex things had gotten over the course of very. But very short, 1963 to 1967. What a incredible, huh? Oh, yeah. Mind-boggling. It is. 
And and the other the other thing that never ceases to amaze me, like even in Get Back, the Peter Jackson, yeah, to to remember that Paul McCartney was only twenty six. You know, yeah, and of course twenty four when they made this. It's incredible. Yeah, it it, it really is. Just uh, and there's a wonderful story which has been told, and I'll tell you now um, how the Beatles finished up Pepper and they took the just completed tapes over to Mama Cass's flat in Chelsea. Um, and they took a plating of the album over and knocked on her door and put it on her record player and cranked it up and put the speakers in the windows. McCartney said this years later, it's a dim recollection, but I think it's true, yeah. The weekend we finished the album is a bit of a blur. I just remember that we all felt so exhilarated. Pepper had taken six months to make, longer than any other album. When we first heard it back, we knew we'd pulled it off. We'd made something a little bit special, something that will blow people's minds. It was mind blowing for us. To us, it wasn't so much that it was a great album musically. It was more that it was an anthem for our generation. It was an album that marked the times and summed up the times. As it turned out, Pepper led the times as much as it marked the times. To get the grips with it, you had to spend time with it. It was influential in lots of ways and not just musically. Suddenly, music writers had to find new ways to respond because suddenly they weren't dealing with Perry Como or whatever. That's Paul McCartney recalling the day they finished it. Uh, the cover. Yeah, the cover. And that's, that's McCartney, right? I mean, all the marketing stuff, which was so tasteful, everything, every every cover every you know and of course i think that was the beginning of like the packaging right like the then there was the white album with the poster and the the eight by tens and let it be with the book let it be with the book which i'm proud to have a copy of um yeah i think that was all mccartney wasn't it or the concept uh, you know, I don't. I don't have that anywhere. Whether it was his or all of theirs, I know that th- certainly it was his idea. We'll we'll have a band standing at a bandstand, and it's going to be this you know band that's not the Beatles. It's called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Thus, the costumes and the mustaches and the whole bit. Uh, they did. They were all asked to come up with a list of people who you want to be in the gang behind you. See. Uh, uh, these were football players, philosophers. George Harrison had to, at the time, he had a lot of Indian musicians and Indian uh, holy men who he wanted in there. Uh, Fred Astaire, Lenny Bruce, Lewis Carroll, Marilyn Monroe, W.C. Fields. May West, isn't it? May West yeah. is in there. Um, Tony Curtis is in there. Uh, yep. Uh, Canadian content. Bobby Breen. A Canadian-born boy soprano, uh, a movie star in the 30s, and a nightclub singer. He's over George Harrison's left shoulder, if you want to look. Uh, it was Thursday, the 30th of March, 1967. I have a, a, a personal story with this. Uh, prior to a late-night recording session at Abbey Road, the Beatles visited Michael Cooper's London Photographic Studio, where the cover photographs for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band were taken. <clears throat> Uh, the shoot took place at four Chelsea Manor Studios, which is numbers 1 to 11 on Flood Street, just off the King's Road in Chelsea. Uh, they show up in late afternoon. The famous 
soon to be famous collage designed by the great Peter Blake and his then wife Jan Haworth had been assembled in the studio when they came in and, and uh, they did the the shoot. Neat thing for me personally, I lived in London for about 10 years. First part, uh, first time, first while we lived there, we were in Battersea, which if you know London is south of the Thames, south of Chelsea. So I would often walk up to Chelsea and my route took me right up Flood Street. And I'd walk along up Flood Street and as as you go up, it's quite a nice street. Uh, There is a great pub on your right-hand side and then up a little bit further, not far below the King's Road is Chelsea Manor Studios. Now uh, flats where people live. But I'd walk by there and go, that's where they took the the photo. And what I always, you know, your mind go, I, I always thought, I wonder if they went to this pub down the road for a pint before or afterwards always wondered but it was wouldn't be surprised it was it was that was such a neat thing about living in london is you'd just be walking up the street and you'd go wow like that's that's where they took the photo for sergeant peppers or you'd walk around the corner and you'd go that's where Jimi hendrix lived or that's where bram stalker lived uh it was you know fascinating place anyway that's my 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 personal story about uh about flood street um And then they had those lovely costumes, which for you trivia buffs, uh, designed by a theatrical costume company in London, M. Berman Limited, Monty Berman, a famous costume designer. McCartney still has his. um, And the others, uh, I know not where they are. Of of course, we must mention the OPP patch. (laughs) That's right. The OPP... uh, Goodness knows how we got that Ontario Provincial yeah. Police patch on McCartney's Sergeant Pepper. I, I have a, a little, actually a little anecdote related to that. I was, uh, when I was a kid, like, I don't know, 12 or 13, I had a subscription to Circus Magazine. Music Magazine, yeah. Yeah, and they had a contest. What, what is the patch on, <laughs> on Paul McCartney's uh, uniform? And I, I remember winning. I, I won McCartney's Greatest Hits, which I still own that album, that uh, vinyl. Uh, so now we've gone through the album, talked a bit about the cover, but I know there's a footnote to your tribute to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and that is on the album. Uh, and you can tell me how it was maybe done differently live, but on the album, you follow up with Penny Lane followed by All You Need Is Love. In an email correspondence that we had before we recorded this, you intimated to me those two tracks were crucial to our album. So tell me about them and why they were crucial. Well, um, as I mentioned, uh, we also included Strawberry Fields, which we opened the concert with. I mean, they were crucial because as you said at the beginning, they were the beginning of what was to be the Sgt. Pepper album. But really, it was uh, it was more practical than that. You know, we wanted a full-length concert, you know, um, mm-hmm. which generally is about 70 or 80 minutes long with intermission. The album alone, I think, is around 40 minutes. So I, I wanted to fill it out. And, it was, you know, as I said important part of the history of that album. So that was the the reason why I wanted to include those. And All You Need Is Love was one of the first things they did after Pepper. Um, 
And it was just such a great ender, you know? Um, and we did that very faithfully to the original. Love is all you need. 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 just it's so i can't tell you how joyous it is to play that music and what it brings out of the the audience you know the, the people's reaction to that music is is unbelievable andrew uh, what are your your final sort of thoughts on on Pepper and your record and our conversation the last couple of hours, uh, the floor is yours. Well, it, it was a total pleasure. Yeah, as I said at the beginning, the Beatles remain for me a miracle, a miracle of all miracles. You know, certainly music, like the most uh, brilliant example of musical synergy I could I could possibly imagine. Um, and I totally enjoyed this. What about, of all the work you've done and are still doing, just curious, where does this tribute to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band sit? Does it have its own little special place? I think so, uh, purely in terms of, it's probably been our most popular project. As I mentioned, we, we toured it extensively through the States. It's the only project that we've toured that much. Uh, so in that sense, yes, and and that along with Abbey Road uh, were the only the only times I actually performed their music, which I I said it, it's really so so uplifting. It's so much pleasure to play. So yes, in 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 many ways, it does sit apart from. Uh, from our other projects. Andrew, it has been enlightening and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Likewise, my pleasure. 
If you have enjoyed the episode, or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation to support the ongoing production of this podcast. Any little bit helps. Uh, Donations have kind of dried up these days. Most people don't donate to the podcast they listen to, uh, but it does help out. It helps offset the production costs, hosting, uh, the odd little bit of advertising that I do, and so on. It's a labor of love. Uh, I do it because I enjoy it, but it would be nice if you could acknowledge the fact that you enjoy the podcast by making a donation. You can do that if you want to visit the website and click on the Support the Walrus button. Any donation, if you can afford it, is muchly appreciated. So thanks. You can follow the podcast on all the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul. On Facebook, do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch, you can go old school and email me at the.romicast at gmail.com. That is the.romicast at gmail.com. I usually uh, respond to most emails and also happy to interact on the socials. I'd like to beef up uh, my followers on Instagram. So if you are on Insta, have a look for Romanuk Paul and, uh, and give a follow. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels also help out always. Next time, Tim Bovacanti, one of the most in-demand freelance guitar players in the biz. He plays with uh, Burton Cummings. Uh, He plays or has played with Ron Sexsmith. He's also a producer. Cool guy. He's going to be joining me to talk about the 1969 album, John Lennon and the Plastic Ono Band, Live Peace in Toronto. It's like a document of a time. That's how I see this record. It's like a total like document of where Lennon was at. And it's in our city, which is cool. And the venue's still there, as you mentioned. And just the whole circumstances around it. It's, it's the throw and go element of the show. And the fact that, you know, he was going to leave the Beatles when he went back to England. It was already a, he was laying it out, and of course, Alan Klein was saying, Don't, "You can't say anything yet, though." That's Tim Bovacanti, and he'll be my guest on the next episode of the Walrus Was Paul podcast. Just a few moments left here for uh, what have I been listening to lately? Uh, nothing. Uh, I mean, nothing that's blowing my head off, but a couple of albums that I'm really enjoying, a couple of new releases, uh, British, both British, British singer, songwriter, and former frontman of a band that I really liked back in the day, a band called Supergrass, uh, has a fantastic new solo album out. Uh, Gaz Coombs is the guy's name, and the album is called Turn the Car Around. Uh, he's done, I want to say, three other solo albums all really, really good. I mean, the guy's got a great voice, great songwriter, and he's got a new one out. So give that a listen if you on your streaming service. Turn the car around. Really liking that. Uh, as well as a new album from the 80s, 90s duo of Ben Watt and Tracy Thorne, which if you're a music fan, you will know, uh, otherwise known as Everything But The Girl. Uh, The album is called Fuse, and it is their first album. I'm pretty sure their last album was in 1999, so it's been ages, and the album called Fuse is very, very good. Uh, Her voice sounds as good as ever. So those are a couple of uh, recommendations this week. Don't forget, once again, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, 
always happy if you can make a donation to support it. Click on the player or go to the website if you'd like to do that. And uh, positive reviews, also something that really helps out. That is it for now. I'm Paul Romanek. Pleasure, as always. I will talk to you next time. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles?